to begin with, St. Francis, uh, you probably know where he comes from. Mm. Assisi, yes, that's right, which is in Italy, in Umbria, and it's sort of northeast of Rome, basically a small town on the top of a hill, and like lots of Italian towns, quite fortified with a wall going around it, tall buildings. Uh, a very beautiful place, actually. Uh, if you get a chance to go visit this, it's well worth uh, uh, visiting to see what it's like, because it's almost preserved as a medieval town in the old town. There's a newer town down at the bottom of the hill, but in the old town, you can imagine as you're walking around, but there's uh, every friars walking around, Francis and his mates, and uh, it's, it, it still feels like a film set in a way of, of a medieval time. And they do films there, I think, uh, because it's not, not been developed very much. But Francis grew up in Assisi, and he lived there all his life. Uh, and he was born in 1182, I think, uh, end of the 12th century. Born to a fairly wealthy home. His father was a merchant, cloth merchant, and uh, a good businessman. So Francis was being trained up to take on the family business. And apparently he was quite good at the business. He was a good talker and naturally good at selling uh, the, the clothing, the fabrics that his father brought back from uh, trips across to France and so on. And his name, Francis, is a nickname from country France. His actual name is John uh, Giovanni, but his, his um, nickname was Francesco Francis. And he grew up as a young man who was um, enjoyed having a bit of money in his pocket. He was uh, the life and soul of the party particularly because he could pay for the drinks at the end of the night. And he used to wear the, the finest clothes because he had the, uh, the shop there. And his, his father was quite pleased about this, and so we gather. And he was uh, a bit of a profligate young man. It's, it's interesting, the different early biographies of Francis, the legends as they're called, they tell different stories about how he was like in those early days. And the first one that came out it's a very black picture of Francis, that he's, he was a very... Sorry, it's a racist term, actually. I can't use that now. That he was a very um, spendthrift young man. Whereas the, the second biography, <coughs> just about ten years later, was that, well, he wasn't actually quite so bad. I mean, he did do good things as well. So it's difficult to tell quite what he was like in those early days. But he was certainly somebody who uh, liked the finest things in life, the good food, good parties and was a very popular person. But then, as he grew older, there was something that he wanted to do with his life. He was trying to work, work out what it was. And in those days, the stories of the, uh, the knights in shining white armor were very current. All the, um, the cycle about Arthur and his uh, round table of knights, they were being written and sung at that time by troubadours going around. And Francis would have heard these, particularly if he had been on his trips with his father to France, to southern France, and uh, he would have um, picked up these stories. And the idea caught his imagination of being a knight. So he got his father to uh, give him all the right armour and everything, and he rode off into battle. He tried this a couple of times. And the first time he, he did this, he went out 
And he, uh, as he was uh, riding off to join this army, which was fighting further down in, in the Italian peninsula, there were all endless wars between emperor's forces and the papal forces at that time in, in Italy and between different towns. So he wasn't sure for finding a, a battle to go and join. But anyway, he, he went off on this trip, and he, the first night he was sleeping, and he had this dream. And in the dream, he heard a voice saying to him, who would you rather serve, the master or the servant? And Francis replied in his dream, well, I'd rather serve the Lord. And so the voice comes back, then why are you serving the servant? So he thinks about this, and he's not quite sure what this means. But the, the meaning he comes to out of this is that actually what he's doing is serving a human being when he should be serving God, serving the, the true Lord, the true master, not some uh, master that he's trying to fight underneath as his, uh, his master in arms. So he goes back to Assisi, and he thinks again about all of this, what he's supposed to be doing. And there were, there were two key moments, I think, in his life um, which uh, made him change his way. And both of them uh, tied very close to discovering Christ in different ways. The first one was one that his biographers talk about that he never talked about, but was something that uh, the early biographers said happened to him. And this was that he was praying in a small church called San Damiano, uh, St. Damien's, which is just outside of Assisi, and that the church was falling down, and uh, that he went into this church and he saw at the, the end of the church a crucifix, a painting of Christ on the cross, in the old Byzantine style. And he knelt or uh, stood before this cross and was praying to Jesus, asking what to do. In a way, he was like... Um, still in that um, mode of being a knight, seeking for his, his mission in life. And so he was kneeling before this different kind of Lord, saying, what, what should I do? Give me, a, give me a task, give me a holy grail to go and find, a damsel in distress, give me something, I've got to do something. So he's praying in front of this crucifix. And again he hears a voice, he hears lots of voices, as Francis. And this time the voice says to him, Go and repair my church, which you see is in ruins. So he looks around him, and he sees the church is falling down, and he thinks, oh, what should I do? I've to go and repair the church. So he goes off and he starts to beg for some stones and some mortar to try and rebuild the church. Imagine he might come into this church here and see you know, a bit of painting needs doing, and I tells him, go and rebuild my church, and he goes and gets a, a pile of paint from B&Q or whatever. And he starts painting the church. Well, he did that with the stones and mortar in Assisi, just outside Assisi, in this place, San Damiano. And, uh, and he's not really turning up for work with his father at this time. In fact, he goes so far as to try and raise money for his building project by taking some cloth that his, uh, he found in the workrooms at his home, putting it onto a horse and going off and selling both of them in the local market and getting the money and bringing it back to the, the priest of this little church in Damiano and saying, hey, well, use this money to keep the candles burning and to, to look after the church. 
and the priest doesn't want to touch it because he knows who his father is and he knows that if his father finds out then all hell will be to pay but uh, that was what Francis was trying to do in his early days searching to do what to do go and repair my church and later on he found it was to repair the whole church the people of the church but he didn't really realise that in the beginning it was a very literal minded approach that he had to things so that was one little episode, praying in this tiny ramshackle church and hearing the voice saying, go and repair my church, which you see is in ruins. And then the second thing that happened to him, which he talks about himself in his last will and testament at the end of his life, which was probably the most important thing to him, was that he was riding along one day and he came across somebody who was beside the road who had leprosy. And this was quite a common problem in those days. And if you were a leper in medieval society, then you were very much ostracised. People believed it was very contagious and uh, there was no cure, of course. So they had, a leper had, had to go around with a bell to warn people that he was around or she was around and was not allowed to come near to um, towns or cities. They had to stay at the edge. And uh, people would build these leprosariums, hospitals, leper hospitals, where they had to stay. And Henry Francis was going along, and he had a horror of illness. Uh, probably he'd been brought up with all the comforts of life, and just to see somebody like this was... Um, uh, he just couldn't cope with it, he didn't want to know about it. But he said later on, at the end of his life, that he met this leper, but that when he saw him, his instinct was to run away, to turn around and to go in the opposite direction, not to have any contact. But for some reason, what he did was he got off his horse and he went to the leper and he embraced him. Or sometimes the story says that the leper embraced him, gave him like the kiss of peace. And he get, Francis gave him some money. And... Uh, got back in his horse and went away again. But Francis said at the end of his life that that was the moment things changed for him. At that moment he embraced that person with leprosy. Because then what had seemed to him so terrible, so horrible, became for him quite the opposite. That what was uh, uh, abhorrent to him became something that was full of sweetness and consolation. That he had embraced what horrified him and found that it was a living, breathing human being, someone who could embrace him. So that meeting the leper was a very key moment. And from that point on, when he wasn't building churches, he was going around staying in leper hospitals and uh, working as a nurse, uh, which is not what not many people wanted to do, of course. And it, some people say that when he died, he died quite young, about 40, early 40s, uh, and it may be that he had some form of that um, residual leprosy that he had caught. Um, maybe that what did for him. Uh, we don't know. But anyway, he was. This is what he was doing: working, helping out in leather houses, building churches, begging for food, sometimes doing work in the fields, but just asking for bread at the end of the day, not for any money. And gradually, a few people gathered around him probably some of his friends from the CC, but also other people who had just heard about him. 
and a, a group, small group of men gathered who were living in uh, either these uh, run-down churches or just wherever they could find. The, the first place that they stayed was a place called Riva Torto, which was uh, just a, an old barn or a shed, a cattle shed, really, outside of Assisi. And there were maybe a dozen or so brothers at the time, and the only way that they had room enough just to, to, to sleep or to pray was by Francis getting at some chalk and chalking up the name on the, on the rafters and saying that this is your place, this is your cell, just underneath that particular rafter, that beam is your place to sleep in the straw. And, uh, and they stayed there for a while, and then uh, before too long, somebody, a uh, local farmer with his donkey or his cow, I can't remember which it was, but anyway, some kind of a farm animal came along, and he saw this um, uh, old barn, which didn't seem to be used. He said, oh, that's a good place for us to be up there. So he moved his cow into this, into this um, barn where all these brothers were all packed together, trying to live some kind of a religious life. And of course, Francis realised that there was, there was no, this, this couldn't go on. You can't pray at the same time as having a cow sitting next to you munching away in the straw. <laughs> Even that was just going a bit too far. So they moved from there, and they found another little church, which was called St Mary the Angels. Uh, and... This was just outside the CC again, just around uh, a couple of miles from the first place. And that's where they settled, and that became the foundation house of the order. Um, and it's a little church again, which Francis helped to, to um, repair. And it's still there in the CC if you go. Uh, and the church itself, it's about the same size as this room, but a bit narrower, a bit longer. Uh, and it's, it's a nice little thing, but uh, now if you visit it, that you, you approach it and all around it is an enormous great big basilica, great big, like a cathedral, with marble and uh, <coughs> pillars and uh, angels flying around and lots of uh, uh, sort of Baroque paintings and so on. And this um, enormous cathedral was built later on, but just there, in, in the middle of this thing, is... Uh, a little little church, almost like a, a, a skating rink of marble with this, this small stone structure in the middle. And that's where they started. Um, that's where they began their life together as brothers. And they, they knew they wanted to live a religious life, a life searching for God, a life of prayer, uh, and a life of just speaking simply about God. So they, they, they went to preach in the local towns, but they didn't preach theology. They weren't allowed to preach theology because they weren't ordained. Uh, or most of them weren't ordained. But all they could preach was what was called penance, which was a simple message, really, just about returning to God, about being sorry for your sins, but more than that, about actually um, changing the way you lived, and particularly about prayer and fasting and almsgiving, which were the, the practices of penance. This was the message that Francis had. Return in practical ways to, to living a life before God. <coughs> that was all he said. And so they, they lived this life together. 
And because the church in those days was a bit wary of these people on the edges of society, there were a number of groups like that, some of whom were uh, not particularly orthodox. And so Francis was actually a very loyal member of the church in many ways, and he wanted to get approval. So he wanted to go to the Pope, go to the top man to, to get approval for the rule. And everyone said to him, well, why don't you just choose one of the existing rules? Why don't you be a Benedictine or <coughs> Augustinian or something like this? But he said, no, 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 don't talk to me about Benedict or Augustine or any of these people. I just want to be a fool, a new kind of fool. That's what he said, a new kind of fool in the world. So he wrote a rule for themselves, which was just a handful of quotations from the scriptures, mostly from the Gospels. And he took this uh, rule to the Pope in Rome. Uh, so they walked down there, this dishevelled bunch of men. And uh, luckily they got an audience with the Pope. Uh, they met, in, when they were in Rome, they met the Bishop of Assisi by chance, who happened to be there. And he introduced them to a cardinal, and the cardinal got the uh, ear of the Pope. And so they had his audience with the Pope. And one of the stories is that as soon as the Pope saw them, this, this, this bunch of uh, wild men from the woods, he said, Gunnar, uh, what are you doing here? You get back to the pigsty where you came from. <laughs> and so Francis, being very literal, and also with a, I don't know, maybe a twinkle in his eye, he, he went out, he said, all right, that's what he says. And he spent the night in a pigsty, just to, because <laughs> uh, the Pope had said it, and uh, came back the next day, perhaps grinning from ear to ear, but with uh, a bit more mud in his hair, and he said, well, I'm back. <laughs> and the Pope obviously realised that, oh, maybe there's something to this man. He's not just a, uh, maybe he's just a fool. Maybe there's something. But anyway, perhaps the Bishop of Assisi had talked on his behalf behind the scenes. And they talked about what Francis wanted to do. And he said that he just wanted to be someone who lived the gospel. That in the gospel it said, uh, take... That's the saying of Jesus to the people who are going on mission. Take nothing for the journey. Take no food in your pack, no money in your belt, no staff, no shoes, no sandals. So he went barefoot. And Francis said, that's what I want to do. Just that. Just to live what it says in the Gospel. And that other story, the rich young man in the Gospel, was very important to Francis also. You know, where the man comes up to Jesus and says, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. What should I do? And Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, one thing you like, if you wish to be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And Francis had heard that in the church and he had found it. He had flicked through the, um, the, the gospel <coughs> and found this and that was his rule of life, simply to follow that, to sell what he had, give to the poor and to follow Christ. That's all he wanted to do. And uh, he said this to the Pope. And obviously the Pope saw something in him, some sparkle <coughs> of holiness, as well as the madness in there as well, the craziness that Francis was completely living this life, this life with his, his friends. And so the Pope gave him approval to go and live this life, uh, the simple life of the Gospel, as Francis understood it. And so they lived together at this place at Mary the Angels, just outside of Assisi. 
Now, to understand a bit more about how Francis spoke about God, about his, um, his own spirituality, as the, the phrase is nowadays, I've put on this sheet that you've got in front of you a few prayers that Francis used or wrote. And on the first page, you've got the prayer before the crucifix, written about 1205. And this was the prayer, according to the legends, that he prayed in those early days when he was still waiting for his commission from God at Church of San Damiano, which was falling down, and he heard the saying, rebuild my church. And this was the prayer that he prayed. Most high, glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart and give me, Lord, a correct faith, a certain hope, a perfect charity, sense and knowledge that so that I may carry out your holy and true command. I'm not quite sure if he actually prayed in those words. <coughs> he didn't write that himself. But this is what the, the biographers say that he prayed. And it's, it sort of sums up those early days when he's searching for his mission to carry out the holy and true command of God. Then if you turn over the page on the left-hand side of the inside, this first one on the left is an extract from the first rule that he wrote. And if you imagine a rule is supposed to be a kind of a legal document saying that you should do this, that, and the other. Or like, like Benedict's rule, it's a wonderful rule, but it gives all these stipulations about how many psalms to say when you're saying vigils in winter and the duties of the sacristan and the cellar and all this kind of stuff. When Francis wrote his rule, this is the kind of thing he wrote. Therefore, let us desire nothing else. Let us wish for nothing else. Let nothing else please us or cause us delight except our creator and redeemer and saviour the one true God, who is the fullness of good, all good, every good, the true and supreme good, who alone is good, merciful and gentle, delectable and sweet, who alone is holy, just and true, holy and right, who alone is kind, innocent, pure, from whom and through whom and in whom is all pardon, all grace and all glory. <coughs> Which is a lovely prayer, and it gives you a sense of the way Francis prayed, that he just overflowed with words. And <clears throat> this kind of stuff when you're writing as a rule is fairly hopeless. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> but it gives you a real spirit of how to live. It actually tells you everything you do need to know about how to live, what to do, and all the details you can work out later. But that was the kind of thing that he was saying. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter so much, as long as you have the spirit, the spirit of prayer and devotion. If you have that, then you have everything you need. And the second prayer on that side is another one, again, he didn't write it, but one he used quite often. May the power of your love, Lord Christ, fiery and sweet as honey, so absorb our hearts as to withdraw them from all that is under heaven. Grant that we may be ready to die for love of your love, as you died for love of our love. So Francis, in his prayers, was very much somebody who was lost in the love of God, somebody who wanted to give up everything for this God, <coughs> who had given up everything for him. He often talked about following in the footsteps of Jesus. And that was 
the, the foundation stone for all that he did. He was known particularly for his poverty, that he gave up everything he had. But he did that because he believed that Jesus was also completely poor. But Jesus had nothing. And he often used to um, quote that saying of Jesus, you know, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he thought, well, if Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, then neither should I. So he always resisted having a place of his own. And when he was going off on his missions, he would stay out in the woods and he'd build a little shelter out of um, sticks or out of, find a cave. He'd often used to go and pray in caves. He liked that kind of hiding away. There was that, that funny side of Francis. On one side, he was very extrovert and talking and preaching. The other side of him wanted to hide away and to pray and be alone with God and going off on uh, retreats for 40 days. Several times a year, he would go on these retreats and very strict fasting and praying. But always it was his devotion to, to Jesus in whatever he did. Because he believed Jesus was poor, he would want to be poor as well. There's that other phrase from, uh, what is it called, Corinthians, I think, that Christ, who for our sakes, though Christ was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And that was the kind of thing that appealed to Francis, that through Christ's poverty he could become rich. So Francis also wanted to become poor, that he could become rich in Christ. And he found Jesus as uh, a brother. He often talked about Jesus, uh, our brother and our Lord. And for him, everyone became a brother or a sister because in everybody he found Christ. And uh, I'll talk a bit more about that later on. He found Jesus very much in the sacraments, uh, particularly in the Eucharist. And uh, he used to want to venerate priests. You know, he said that if ever you found a priest, you should kiss the priest's hand because the hand was the one that consecrated Christ in the altar. And if you ever found a church where the sacrament wasn't properly kept, that the brothers should make sure that it was, that they would tidy the place up, take a broom with them when they went on mission and sweep up the churches so that the, the sacrament would be properly kept. And, uh, yeah. There was one time he said that um, uh, even if he saw St. Lawrence, and St. Lawrence was a very famous saint in those days, and everyone venerated the St. Lawrence, who was a great martyr, but he said that even if I saw St. Lawrence and a priest standing next to him, I'd say to St. Lawrence, get out of the way. I want to greet this priest. <laughs> so he had this great veneration. Not because he thought they were particularly holy. I mean, he was aware that people are good and bad. But he venerated them because through them, Christ came in a sacrament. We found Christ in the sacrament. And this is a very important thing. He was also very devoted to Mary, too. Uh, he wrote a, a selection of prayers, a selection from the Psalms, which he prayed at the end of each office. He prayed the seven daily offices like everybody else, but at the end of each office he said a few extra Psalms with prayers to Mary as well. And he saw Mary as his protector. He had two protectors, really, Mary, but also Lady Poverty, who was his damsel in distress in some ways, the one he vowed to serve. And 
between them, they looked after him. So he always, um, yes, this devotion to Christ. And it's said that even when he walked on, on rocks, he trod carefully, because in the scriptures it says that Christ is our rock. So he didn't want to be disrespectful to rocks. Uh, there's one story again where he was going along one day and he saw somebody carrying some lambs going into um, to a market to, to sell them. And they were tied up, trussed up. And uh, Francis was there with another brother and they saw this man carrying these, these little lambs along. And he said to them, stop, what are you doing? Those poor little lambs. Because the story says, Christ, you see, is the Lamb of God. So he saw Christ in these little lambs. And he said, stop, don't, don't, what are you doing? You're hurting them. So the man says, well, I've taken them to the market to sell them. And, so, and Francis said, well, what will happen to them then? And he said, well, I suppose somebody will kill them and eat them. That's what, that's what happens to lambs. And so Francis said, well, let me buy them from you. I'll take them off you. So I said, well, you know, what are you going to give me? Because there was, was just this, this friar, this man standing there, who obviously hadn't got much money about him. So Francis said, well, I'll give you my cloak. So he gave him the coat that he was wearing. And of course, the other brother said to him, actually, Francis, that's not your coat. Somebody lent that to you just this morning. <laughs> so he didn't care about that anyway. He gave him the cloak. And uh, so he gave him, the, the guy thought, well, this is quite a good coat. It's worth more than two lambs. So he, 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 he shook hands on the deal. So there Francis is in the middle of winter with no coat and two lambs. So he says to the brothers, oh, what are we going to do with these lambs? <laughs> and, uh, so then he said, well, I'll give them back to the farmer. <laughs> give them back to the man who had the lambs in the first place. But on the one condition that you don't kill these lambs, that you look after them. And uh, I don't know why the man took them back. But anyway, in the story he says, well, okay, I'll take them back for you. And so uh, Francis wandered off happy because he'd saved the lambs and lost his coat in the process, but that didn't matter. It wasn't his coat anymore, somebody else's. So Francis was um, this person wandering around, great devotion to Christ, also seeing in living creatures and all things, finding Christ everywhere. And then if you look on your next piece of writing here. We've got the Song of Brother Son, which sums up a lot of this relationship that Francis had to the natural world. And he wrote this song. He was very proud of the song. He got all his brothers to learn it and to sing it to anyone they'd meet. It was like a mission song. And he wrote this fairly near to the end of his life, actually. And he was already quite a sick man by the time he, he started to write this. And he had a disease of the eyes. And sometimes you can see pictures of Francis with a handkerchief up to his eyes. And maybe it was because uh, he used to weep. I mean, in the Eastern Orthodox, they, they talk a lot about this thing, uh, penthos, this sorrow for the sins of the world, weeping as being a, a sign of um, the beginnings of prayer. I uh, once heard somebody say, he asked an Orthodox monk, how do I know when I'm really beginning to pray? And the monk told him, when, when a tear forms in the corner of your eye, then you've begun to pray. Well, Francis was a bit like that as well. He was very much uh, somebody who wept for his own sins and the sins of the world, for the pain of the world. But he did have a problem with his eyes, and he had this illness, and 
one time when he was visiting a place near Rieti, which is just down the valley from Assisi, uh, they, they called in a doctor, an eye doctor, to try and sort out his eyes. And uh, the doctor came along and saw Francis, and he diagnosed what the problem was, and he said, well, the only cure for this condition of the eyes is a cauterization. Uh, so Francis said, all right, well, go on, do, do what you have to do. So they stoked up a fire in this house. Um, and we got the, uh, this iron, this poker, and the doctor was going to cauterize him from the temple, uh, from the ear to the temple, which was supposed to alleviate the problem. Well, of course, it doesn't do anything at all, but <clears throat> that was the, the, the cure, supposedly. So they got this, um, this, this, this red-hot iron ready, and all the other brothers who were there they thought, well, maybe Francis wants a bit of privacy here. We better, we better go into the next room. So they all went into the next room. And uh, Francis stayed alone there. And before the doctor did anything, he spoke to the fire. And he said to the fire, Brother Fire, you know I've always looked after you. I've always treated you courteously. And he had. He hated to put out fire. If a fire was around, he wouldn't want it to be doused or anything. He just wanted it to, to, to burn out naturally if it had to. One time, even his, his trousers caught fire, and he said, oh, no, no, don't put it out. <laughs> well, the fire wants to live as well. So the garden had to go and get a bucket of water and throw it over it to, to stop it. But anyway, so Francis talks to this fire and says, Brother Fire, you know, I've always treated you so well. Be gentle with me now. And uh, so the doctor gets the iron and, and he cauterizes from the... Uh, ear to the temple. Francis didn't cry out or anything. And when it was finished, he called in the other brothers who came in from the next room. And, uh, and Francis said to the doctor, if it's not cooked, cook it some more. Which was a quote from St. Lawrence, but anyway. And the doctor said to the other brothers, I, the doctor said, I've seen many brave men, very strong men, but I've never seen somebody who could take pain in a way that this frail, ill little man was able to do. And he was very impressed by St. Francis. So that was the kind of man Francis was. So all this had happened, and his eyes were uh, still just the same as they were, and his digestion was gone to pot because he'd been fasting so much in his <coughs> life, and he spent half his life living out in the woods. And he was basically in a, in a pretty bad way. And he was staying in a little hut in the garden of the convent of the sisters, Port, uh, St. Clair and her sisters. And at the time, uh, he, he couldn't see much, he couldn't bear the light, so they were, the, the windows were covered over. But he couldn't sleep at night because there were all these mice running around and crawling all over him at night time. And uh, he was generally pretty miserable. And then he wrote this song. And he says, most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory, the honour and all blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong. No human is worthy to mention your name. 
Be praised, my, praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Sun, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendour, and bears the likeness of you, most high one. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In heaven you formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother wind, and through the air, cloudy and serene, and every kind of weather, through whom you give sustenance to your creatures. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us, and who produces various fruits with coloured flowers and herbs. And that was as far as it got in the first time we thought about <coughs> But if you imagine that man sick, can barely see, he can't even bear to be out in the light. And he writes this lovely song about Brother Sun and our sister Mother Earth. And you can understand why he's the patron saint of the ecology movement nowadays. <coughs> because there he was, thinking about all these things. And people in medieval times, they didn't really go in for the wonders of nature very much. And when you get it in certain groups, you get it in some Celtic saints, this closeness with nature. But the Franciscans had it very much, or Francis had it very much. And I think it was because he spent so much of his life out there in the midst of it all, in the woods, in, in nature, in caves, in mountains, that uh, he was very close to things. And there are lots of stories about his closeness to animals, that he was, had a kind of rapport with, with animals. Uh, one of the stories about him is that there was uh, a wolf. Perhaps you've heard of this story? I don't know anyway. <laughs> it's like that there was um, a wolf who was terrorising a town at a place called Gabio, uh, which is to the north of Assisi. And Francis heard about this. And the wolf, because there were wolves wandering around Europe at that time, and if they were hungry, then they would go for a, uh, a dog or a child or something like this. And uh, the wolf had apparently killed one or two people from this town. And so Francis decided that he would go and talk to the wolf. So he went out and... Uh, <coughs> I don't know, I think probably just one brother. Brother Leo went around with him everywhere. Brother Leo was his great friend. He, Leo, of course, means lion. So he called Brother Leo, my little lamb, Brother Leo. <laughs> so the two of them went around. So he's a bit like um, the straight man to Francis, you know, by Brother Leo. And Leo wrote some of the legends about him afterwards. So they went along, and they, they, they went into this wood where the, the, the wolf was. And there, in front of him, where they turned the corner, was this wolf. And he saw him straight in front of him. It's a great thing for primary schools to tell a story. <laughs> but there was the wolf in front of him. And uh, you can imagine him snarling with the uh, kind of dripping saliva from his fangs as he looks at this strange, not very tasty monk in front of him. And, uh, and Francis stops in his tracks. The wolf stops in his tracks. And... All he does is he looks at the wolf and he makes a sign of the cross. And the wolf sits down. 
and doesn't come any further. So Francis walks up to the wolf and says to him, Brother wolf, I've heard lots about you. I hear that you're being very bad. You're terrorizing this town. You're eating all these people. You can't do this, Brother Wolf. But I'll make a deal with you. If you promise to stop hurting these people, I guarantee that they'll feed you for the rest of your life. What do you say? <laughs> and so the wolf nods its head. <laughs> and Francis goes up to it and puts out his hand to shake hands, and the wolf puts his hand over him there, so they shake hands and paw. And then Francis goes with the wolf, trotting by his side, and Brother Leo, trembling, <laughs> and they go back into Gabio, and all the people of Gabio say, ah, the wolf is coming! But Francis is right next to him, trotting away. And they walk into the town, and the people are amazed that this wolf, who had been terrorising for all this time, was now tamed by this Brother Francis. And so they agree to feed this wolf for the rest of his days. And he becomes like a pet in the town. And a year or two later, the wolf dies of natural causes. And the town is very sad, and they bury him. Because they'd lost this contact with Francis, they believe they had, through this, this wolf. And, uh, and that was the end of the story, really. Francis telling the wolf. And think, oh, it's just a nice little story, really, isn't it? But apparently, they were doing some digging, new apartment complex or something in Gabia, and they, they, they found this, this grave with a very, very large dog, what it looked like. So maybe there was a real wolf, and maybe Francis tamed the wolf. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, because there are lots of stories you know, about holy men or women who have this ability to, to relate to animals. Animals, you know, animals can sense fear, animals and children. They can sense fear, smell it in the air. And maybe if Francis stood there with no fear, that he could... Anyway, that's the kind of person he was. The wolf was a brother. He wasn't an enemy. He wasn't uh, someone to fight against or anything like that. He was simply a brother who didn't quite know how to behave. But of course, people don't quite know how to behave either. And so, uh, shortly after Francis had written his first half of this song, he heard about a dispute in Assisi between the bishop and the mayor, the Podesta, and they were um, having a constructive uh, dialogue as they were, and they weren't speaking to each other, of course. They were just refused some business deal had gone wrong between them, and uh, they weren't talking. And Francis heard about this, and he was very much into reconciliation, that people should be together and not have these battles the whole time. So he got his brothers to sing this song to serenade the bishop and the mayor but he wrote an extra verse so the verse he wrote then was next bit praised be you my lord through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation blessed are those who endure in peace for by you most high shall they be crowned so he got them to go and sing this to them and, and apparently they made up they were, they were just very moved by this, this this little man who somehow knew more about God than anybody else in Assisi. And then shortly after this, he wrote the final verse to this, this um, hymn. Praised be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death, from whom no one living can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whom death will find in your most holy will, for the second death shall do them no harm. Praise and bless my Lord and give him thanks 
and certain with great humility. And the story behind that last verse is that when he was sick and uh, they got another doctor to come and see him to see what could be done. This was in about September 12, 26. And the, he asked the doctor, uh, tell me, what, what's, what, what do you think is going to happen to me? Am I going to live or am I going to die? And the doctor said to him, well, Brother Francis, we, uh, we have good hopes that with, if you rest and if you take this medicine, then, you, uh, then by the grace of God, then you'll be okay. But Francis realized that he wasn't actually telling the truth. So he said to him, no, tell me, doctor, tell me the truth. What's going to happen? Am I going to live or am I going to die? And so the, Francis, the doctor said to him, well, if you want to know the truth, it's my opinion that before the middle of October, then you will have died. And Francis said, thank you. And he held out his arms and said, welcome, Sister Death. And that was the last reconciliation for him, that death was a friend to him, a sister. And towards uh, a fortnight or so after this, the beginning of October, he got his brothers to lay him out on the floor in this little hut outside of Assisi. And he wanted to be poor, completely poor, as he died. And so even the habit that he that he wore was the last position that he had. So he said, take from me the habit so I can just die as I was born on the earth. And so they, they, they did this for him and he lay there and uh, the end seemed to be about to come. But it didn't quite come. He didn't die just at this moment. And so the people around him, the guardian, said, uh, Brother Francis, we can't leave you like this. I command you under holy obedience to wear this other habit which you got from somewhere. It's not your habit. It's just our habit. You must wear this habit. So he wore the habit. Uh, and he, he lingered for another week. And at the end of that time, uh, he died. 12.26. October 3rd in the evening. And soon after he died, the people of the town decided that this great saint was an asset. The bones of a holy saint was a very precious thing in medieval times. And so they put an armed guard around the house. Nobody was allowed in or out, uh, just to make sure that his, nobody took his, his body, anyone else. Uh, and eventually they took it up into the town. They took it past the convent of poor Clara's, Clara's his great friend. And they mourned over him, and then he was taken up into the town itself. And eventually, he was laid to rest in this church, which was built up around him within a couple of years, this great big basilica of St. Francis. Uh, it's a beautiful church, actually. If you go, there's this sequence of paintings by Giotto all around the outside, very famous in, in the history of art, all about the life of Francis. And that's where he is now. They uncovered his, his tomb uh, 20 years ago or so, and, uh, and, and there he was. And so that's the life of St. Francis. And just to finish 
what I want to say. A little bit of time for questions. More questions later. On the very back of the sheet, you have a, a prayer that Francis wrote, the praises of God. He wrote this, this is two years before he died. He had just received the, the stigmata, you know, the wounds of Jesus. Which, um, when you see pictures of Francis, he has the wounds in his hands and his side and his feet, which he received at the end of a long retreat when he had a vision of um, an angel on a cross. And after he saw this vision of light, he felt this pain in his hands, and there were these wounds, which bled, and there were bandages. Um, and anyway, after he had that vision, this was the prayer he wrote, and this is really his relationship with God. You are holy Lord, the only God, and your deeds are wonderful. You are strong, you are great, you are the most high, you are almighty. You, holy Father, are king of heaven and earth. You are three and one, Lord God, all good. You are good, all good, supreme good, Lord God, living and true. You are love, you are wisdom. You are humility, you are endurance. You are rest, you are peace. You are joy and gladness. You are justice and moderation. You are all our riches and you suffice for us. You are beauty, you are gentleness, you are our protector. You are our guardian and defender. You are courage, you are our haven and our hope. You are our faith, our great consolation. You are our eternal life, great and wonderful Lord, God Almighty, merciful Saviour. And he scribbled this down on a piece of paper, and he gave it to Brother Leo, who was with him at the time. And Leo folded it up quite carefully, and he stuck it into his habit, sewed it into his habit, actually. And we still have that piece of paper uh, in Francis' handwriting. Not very good handwriting. And it's all kind of crinkled up, this little piece of paper. But that was the last thing that he Italian wanted to do. Italian or... Um, Italian. Italian. No, that's the thing. I'm not sure. The Canticle of the Creatures was in Italian. Yeah. All the things in Italian. This may have been in Latin. This may have been in Latin. <coughs> mm. And that's St. Francis. He was canonised two years later, after he died, and the Franciscan movement came from there. <laughs>